supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. I'm with Valentine Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. Brighton Neighbor will be joining us next week to talk all things Ad Astra, which is in cinemas tomorrow. We'll also be discussing Ad Astra briefly later in the program. And we'll also be yeah. talking later in the program about Smartphone Film Fest, SF3, and the Sydney Underground Film Festival, which included this weekend. However, we are also talking this week, Drummel, it is the seventh Queer Screen Film Festival. It is kicking off tonight at Events Cinema's Jaw Treat and running through the week, and also having a special screening, which we're going to talk about at the beautiful cinema of Mount Vic Flicks, up at the very top of the mountains. And we have us with us the director of Queer Screen, Lisa Rose. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, boys. So, yeah, Queer Screen, it's happening, it's starting. We want to go through the program, talk about some of the highlights and mm-hmm. the flicks. But first of all, Queer Screen, what is it and what have you got in store for us this year? Okay, so Queer Screen is a not-for-profit charity. We've been around for 26 years. Uh, we produced the Mardi Gras Film Festival as our main event. And then seven years ago, we decided uh, we needed to do a second festival because there's so much LGBTIQ content that's being made nowadays. Um, and Mardi Gras is so busy that uh, people often complain to us that they um, can't come and see any films. So we thought, well, let's let's put on another festival. So we do. Uh, and there's so much fantastic content now that it really does justify being able to um, put on another festival. This uh, Our theme sort of for this year is Light Your Fire because uh, we're opening the festival with um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, which is a magnificent piece of um, French filmmaking. Uh, and then there's t- I've noticed after – so we've got 29 films um, and in the 29 films that's features and shorts and docos, I just noticed that over half of them were quite romantic romantic and so we just decided to kind of really dive in and, and play on that theme of of passion and and fire and all that sort of stuff so how, what sort of choices go into building the program because th- as you say there is so much lbtqi content at the moment yeah so it's an interesting one because this is a smaller festival now than at mardi gras so at mardi gras we usually have about 120 to 130 films um so obviously this is a lot smaller uh, but it also means we have a lot lower budget for instance for advertising and things like that so i really try and look at things that um are kind of sort of no-brainers um for one of a better one of a better word um and also things that are probably easy to market that i can find their audience quite easily they're not so niche um, that type of thing or if they are niche that's something that I can really tap into Uh, and it's also just looking at stuff that might be going to come out theatrically later in the year because there's nothing quite like watching a queer film with a queer audience so if we can we can put something on screen um, that is going to get a theatrical release later in the year and have just you know mostly queer audience watching it it's just a really really uh, profound kind of experience you get the jokes and you know all the romance and all the sort of nuance and stuff that's in there that um, seeing it theatrically in a in a cinema that may not be full um, would be a very different experience Mm. now a feature I think people should seek out at the festival before it gets a a release much much later in the year it is the it's a profound film it is I think the most romantic film of the year for me it's my second favorite feature that I've seen all year and it is your opening night flick you're screening it twice during the festival I absolutely love this. And can you tell us about Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Yeah, so Portrait of a Lady on Fire is uh, a fet, fet, it's not fet, it's set, uh, set in the 18th century in, in Brittany in France. Um, it's a film by uh, Celine Sciamma, who uh, has made some fantastic films. I'm actually a big fan of all of her previous work, um, Girlhood um, and uh, Tomboy especially. Um, and it, it's just, it's a really interesting film because they, it's, 
I've seen a lot of interviews with her and people talk about the female gaze and everything with her and she she kind of denies it a bit and says there's no such thing as a female gaze because we only know a male gaze because a male gaze exists because cinema over you know as long as it's existed has just predominantly been made by men so you can you can really know what a male gaze is and so people are saying oh this is female gaze and it's like well it's just it's a woman making a film but for me as a woman and as a gay woman and she is a gay woman it's like it's it is a film that is so very clearly made by a woman who loves women there's it's you know there, there are women wearing uh, corsets and I've talked to a lot of sort of um, straight men about this and about the the fact of corsets and the way that you know men might look at a woman in a corset and see cleavage and be attracted to that or something like that but for a queer woman you look at that and it's not about that it's about the breath that happens with it it's like it's just there's so much breath and there's so many the, the glances that they do it's just so sensual and so sexy um but also incredibly moving. And the final 15 minutes of that film is just, you've just got to see it to believe it. I cried. I cried for a lot of it. Yeah. I, uh, you're, when you're speaking of creating an audience for, um, or a space where there can be a queer audience for the queer films that are coming out at the end of the year, the other big one um, that also played at Sydney Film Festival, mm-hmm. along with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is Pain and Glory. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that film. It's a beautiful film. It's yeah. like you sit there watching that film and going, this is clearly made by a master of cinema. He just knows exactly what he's doing. And uh, it too has an incredible final shot. Like yeah. It's just so amazing that these two films that have been revered so much as two of the, probably two of the best queer films of the year just mm-hmm. both have these incredible final shots. Which uh, you know, people can wait until they get to the end to see to see what it is. But it's just I'd really like his use of colour and it's just such an and Tony Banderas is so amazing in it. It's so warm. Yeah. I felt like there was so much love for all of the characters yeah. expressed throughout. Even if it's you know kind of complicated, yeah, <laughs> messy yeah. love at times. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's a very. I think it's a very uh, adult film, for want of a better. Very much so, but without being. Um, you know, extremely serious. Yeah, yeah, it's quite playful, <laughs> yeah. and um, and and it's just it's quite surprising. I think it doesn't. Um, you kind of don't really know where it's going to go for a lot of what it's doing, and the, and the flashbacks um, where Penelope Cruz plays his mother um, are just so sweet and beautiful. Mm. Um, it's it's a re- it's a really moving and just sort of um, interesting film. Mm. This is another absolute favorite of mine from the year, and I find it remarkable that both films deal with the idea that you can recall ideas or images of things but and they take different approaches but they have the cent- was the central same argument you can create recreate something but you can only do that to an extent and what is in a creator's mind or a memory can only to an extent reflect your life and which is a idea of what film is in of itself but I love how Pain and Glory dealt with it. Do you feel it was very distinct from how Portrait of Lady on Fire dealt with these sort of issues? Uh, yeah, I think they're. I think they're quite. They. I mean, I think they're quite different. They're both very European in the way that they're made, mm-hmm. uh, but I think they're. I mean, they're both really dealing with love, but in different kind of ways. Um, like you know, Pain and Glory obviously is dealing with his his lost his his love of life really, and it's just about him trying to to kind of get over his depression and and mm. just sort of fall in love with filmmaking again and fall in love with just living again. Yeah. Um, and I just yeah, that's a, I think that's a really interesting sort of thing to to make a film about. And it seems to be that it's quite a personal film for him. I mean, I don't know how much of it would be about his own sort of experiences, but obviously it just it he, just seems like it he probably seems is. to be kind of playfully alluding to this yeah. being very very similar to his experience yeah. Yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. 
Absolutely. Something that jumped out at me looking at this program is that there seems to be a tribute to showgirls going on. Ah, yes. You Don't Know Me, a documentary, mm-hmm. as well as a uh, 4K restoration screening of showgirls. Yes, um, uh, yes. My yes. operations manager who did the test of the, the DCP was like, that looks amazing. <laughs> the 4K, <laughs> 4K of trash on the screen. Uh, I love Showgirls. I have been waiting for an excuse to play that film again yeah. um, on screen because uh, one of my first ever cinema going um, experiences with Queer Screen was uh, when I first moved to Sydney in the early 2000s. And I went to a fundraiser screening where they showed Showgirls. Um, and somebody started a slow clap in the like dying dolphin sex scene, and it was right. one of my greatest cinema going experiences. Showgirls of my life. Is, is such a weird one because, yeah, it's really bad, but is it that bad? Well, that's the that's the beauty of yeah. um, you don't know me. Like it really sort of deep dives into the fact that Paul Verhoeven is a really talented filmmaker, mm. and he has a very distinctive style, and you can see the style of what he is doing throughout the history of his other films. Because the way that he makes the film, it's not it's not a talking head documentary. Like they literally have no talking heads on screen at all. It's done almost like a video essay and sort of a deep dive into why the film is revered or hated. And he tries to he has a few people that um, talk throughout the film and it's intercut with different clips from different Paul Verhoeven films. Right. Um, Just sort of as reaction shots and things like that. It's incredibly clever and it's also very, very funny. I think that's probably a smart way to go about, I guess, defending Showgirls because Mm -hmm. I don't think it's entirely successful, but if you look at his other films, you think he has to be in on the joke. But it's, it's at this sort of strange place where I think he knowingly peddles throughout all his movies, like sexually exploitative trash but at the same time maybe he knows that it's trash and and is sort of winking well i think yeah i think what's interesting that's one of the things it touches on because it talks about whether he retrospectively has decided to say pretend that he was in on it or whether he actually seriously thought it was something else because there's a couple of bits of evidence that seem to point that oh at the time you don't think that he did think that but then he's now just kind of leaning into it and being like yeah but I mean Elizabeth right. Berkeley, the who played Naomi Malone clearly was not in on it she yep. had no idea she thought that was going to be her you know basic instinct like make right. her a big star oh, kind of man. film it's very it's very sad to be honest like because yeah. she you know her performance is so ridiculous it was so ridiculous all of the performances are so ridiculous I know but that's <laughs> why it's such a hilarious movie <laughs> but hers is like next level ridiculous like there's no like tongue-in-cheek like Gina Gershon is quite tongue-in-cheek in the way that she she's very camp yeah but but um, so, uh, poor Elizabeth Berkeley, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but poor Elizabeth Berkeley is not. She's just like going from like zero to a hundred, and in the it film, matches the character, really, yeah, doesn't it, it? Well, it does. And he and you know, and she was completely panned for this performance, but she's only doing what he told her to do, mm. and like that's the thing that has sort of you know, it's a shame for her that you know this it kind of ruined her career. Mm. It didn't really ruin his career necessarily, right. but. Interesting. I'm loath to admit this, and I think we have discussed this here. I actually haven't seen Showgirls. So for someone who, ha- this is new. It's all right. To, to go in, this is probably the perfect experience oh, yeah. to watch this double. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, no, my wife hasn't seen it either. And uh, I've been trying to get her to watch it for ages. It could be a Rocky Horror-esque experience. In, oh, yeah. In I saw it. I saw, um, I saw You Don't Know Me at Frameline in San Francisco, and it was basically just a room full of fans, and it was one of the funnest experiences I've had in the cinema in a very, very long time. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's the perfect chance to see it mm. for the very first time and then, you know, and then to watch the double feature. Uh, stick around and... Cool. Whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, what are some of the other films on the program that you think are worth drawing attention to? I think there's a really fantastic um, documentary that uh, is showing on the Saturday afternoon called Killing Patient Zero. Um, it's by a guy called Laurie Lind. He's actually a guest of the uh, festival. He'll be here um, for a Q&A. And he, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, an investigative exoneration of the man that was wrongly accused of basically bringing AIDS to North America. So um, after he died, um, they there was a book that was written that named him as Patient Zero. And then there was basically plastered all over the press in, in the US, um, basically calling him a monster. And that, he, you know, he was the one who um, was responsible um, for spreading AIDS. And it's just not accurate at all. The only reason, and it's, it's really sad, like the only reason that it happened was because he was so willing to help them try and figure out what the disease was and how it was being spread, that he was able to, you know, he had uh, great records of the people that he had slept with. And so he was able to just kind of, you know, give them all this like personal information. And because he was so willing to do that, it made him appear to be, you know, patient zero because he was so interconnected. Um, it's an incredibly important film for the LGBTIQ community, but also for the wider community real, really because this, this poor man and his poor family have just had this just horrendous things be said about him. Um, after he's died and it's just not accurate at all it's uh i guarantee that you'll need to bring your tissues to that one but also it's just an incredibly well-made doco like he's a very good filmmaker right now we've talked about a couple of documentaries but one that is screening with an australian side elizabeth debicki a period piece which is happening i think on the weekend is that right yeah vita and virginia so yes so elizabeth debicki plays um virginia wolf uh, and it's about the love affair between Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville-West. Um, Gemma Arterton plays Vita Sackville-West. Um, and it's a really interesting period piece. Like, it's some really interesting um, kind of creative choices that are made with it. Uh, it's... They use a they use a soundtrack and a score that is not of the era. Um, they use a modern electronic sounds, soundscape and score, kind which... Uh, Marie Antoinette-esque, I guess. Yeah, in a little way, yeah. And I think it, it's, I actually really like it. I know some people will probably find it a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit jarring or a little bit different, but I think it actually really creates an urgency in the film that um, that, that I think really um, aids it and, and adds to the experience. Uh, but it'll be really interesting to see what people think of it. Um, I personally think it's a really interesting film. It actually opened Frameline in San Francisco earlier this year. And documentary uh, that stood out to me uh, uh, just through the premise alone was Seahorse. Yes. About a transgender man who wants to father, you know. Father, father yeah. So he's actually, he's a transgender gay man. Yeah. So he, yeah, he wants to, he wants to father his own child. He wants to have a family and being a transgender gay man, it's like, what, what, what can he do? Mm. So um, yeah, so he basically stops taking hormones um, for a year to, to try and get pregnant uh, and succeeds. And it's just basically follows him and it's an incredibly intimate uh, and profound film. Uh, he's a very, very likable guy. Um, the filmmaker is a, is a fantastic um, awarded filmmaker. Um, for documentary and it's uh, played Melbourne International earlier this year um, and it's just I think it's a, the type of uh, film that can sort of really give you sort of an eye-opening experience to what it is really like to be trans and what it is you know the power of the power of creating a family how it's how it's the desire for so many people regardless of how they identify and people should be able to create family however they want uh, and it's it's really beautiful I highly recommend it. And we talked earlier in the program about a film about a filmmaker and filmmakers, but there's one other, which is the Closing Night feature, which will be screening on Sundays on mm -hmm. evening 7 p.m.? Yeah. 
So that's called Benjamin. Um, so that's a film by a UK comedian um, called Simon Amstel, who I think used to host a television show called, uh, what is it, How did the Buzzcocks? Never mind the Buzzcocks. Yeah, never mind the Buzzcocks, yeah. that's it. Um, and uh, he has the guy that was Merlin on the television show Merlin, who basically kind of seems to basically be playing what Simon Amstel is in real life. Uh, so it's a guy called Ben who is a filmmaker and he's he's basically uh, about to release his second film um, and he is just very neurotic about the fact that he's about to release his second film and he's very paranoid that it's going to be you know poorly received. At the same time as that happening, um, he meets a young French musician and so it's kind of this romance um, mixed in with this very sort of like wry comedy about um, filmmaking and uh, being accepted uh, and how serious you're taken and art and all these things. It's a, it's a really interesting film. It's quite witty. It's very British humour. I think a lot of Australians get British humour, so I think it'll do quite well. I think so too. And we have it's, – it's already started. It's going to be running through the 22nd of Vincent with George Street and then on the 4th of October – at Mountain Fig Flex, people want to go. How do we get there? How do we get tickets? Yeah, so you go to queerscreen.org.au. Yeah, so the weekend of October 4th, 5th, 5th, 4th, 5th and 6th, we are at Mountain Vic Flicks. Oh, so it's a few days, wow. Yeah, yes. three whole days. You're just focused on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm going to see you. I've got, I've got my soup ready. You go to the little bar there, here. get the soup, get the corn soup. It's lovely there. And stay in Gatunberg, go to Lithgow. It's a great do weekend. Old, do the whole thing. Yeah, it's great. I'll be there. Uh, yeah, and then we're at events in the Miss George Street till, till Sunday, and um, the stuff is selling out. But uh, you should try and get tickets. And we also have a little, uh, we've got a special at the moment. This year we're doing youth tickets. We, um, if you can rock up to any film that hasn't sold out, if you're um, 25 or under, um, and get tickets for $10. Bargain. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, please, everyone, take, take them up on that because that is incredible. And that. <laughs> we'll, we'll be there. We're so excited. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. And thank we'll you for having me. And we'll see you at Event Cinemas and at the absolutely gorgeous cinema, uh, only, a couple, only about an hour away from here. Yeah. And we'll be back right after this talking all things SF3 and to the Underground Film Festival. Stay tuned. We absolutely love our supporters at 2SER. To give back, we have regular supporter-only giveaways with tickets to gigs, movies, the theatre, exhibitions and more. Look out for 2SER e-news in your inbox to see what you could win. Stories, ideas, music and free stuff. You win! Fresh perspectives on local and international stories. It's very unique and beautiful. It's a healing process. We have lots of joy. It's very important to me putting my story out there. The Wire, weekdays at 6pm on 2SER 107.3. Do you have any 2SER memorabilia lying around the house? We're hosting a pop-up archiving day on Saturday, September 28th and asking listeners like you to help us add to our collection. Bring down your 2SER tapes, photos and documents from years gone by to Studios 301 from 12 to 4pm and help us complete the station's archives. Register your interest at 2SER.com slash 40th birthday and tune into Weekend Breakfast's Deep Dives in the Archives. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. So we are talking Sad Astra. The Sad, sad Astronaut tale. Bad... Brad Astra. Brad Pitt is a sad astronaut. Ad Astra, yeah. Yeah, Ad Astra. It's Latin for it's Latin for sad Brad Pitt, which is in cinemas in a row. We're going to be talking, as I said earlier, in much more detail with Varad Nehru. And also maybe a special guest next week. But yes. until then, our brief thoughts, since it's the big release of the week. It is the new film from director James Gray, The Lost City of Z, a favorite of both mine and Chris's from the Melbourne Film Festival a couple of years back. It is starring Brad Pitt, Tom Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland, Liv Tyler, 
Ruth Neger and a few others. It is about Brad Pitt, who is a very accomplished astronaut who, due to these major events and its base, which are wreaking havoc with the solar system and the city and the stratosphere more generally, has to go on a mission to help save the solar system. It has strong shades of Interstellar and First Man, though I would say though who were keen on those films or expected things from those films might be a little more satisfied with this. I liked this film on balance. There is some gorgeous cinematography. Uh, it, those it's interesting this this came in the wake of the hard of certainly hard of darkness. Um Apocalypse Now, new version. Yeah. It is much closer to Joseph Conrad's original Heart of Darkness. It's it, interesting to see some of the same kinds of scenes that we watched a couple of months ago a month ago in Apocalypse Now. Uh, now in space. But, um, yeah, I had some issues with this film. I went in expecting to love it because I've loved almost all of James Gray's other films, but I found um, the voiceover explaining the themes of this film kind of clunky. Uh, I found it hard to uh, often get in tune with what the Brad Pitt character is feeling and which his voiceover is always telling us that he's feeling. I feel like James Gray is really good at drawing out drama between people, but he's kind of struggled with the more internal, um, kind of almost monologue-driven film here that's really just about one person. I also think this kind of space imagery is getting really, really familiar, so it wasn't as mind-blowing as I think it, it needed to be. There, there, there are some really nice moments, and Gray is a very assured director at of action, um, and a, a spectacle, but overall, I just found this film kind of leaden, like really, really, really serious. I still liked it on um, because of some of the details of the space travel and some of the emotional beats towards the end really do connect, but it it was lacking vitality, I think. See, I didn't mind the voice at all. Brad, but for me, is a convincing actor and performer to sell it. I liked the production design in this and the general world. It was, I think it was distinct stuff, particularly the imagery because it was set in the near future and there's some excellent world buildings, particularly around space the world tourism, is very good. Um, how the world powers interact now and the shots and moments we spend on the moon are just superb. I would also say that in a film which is very emotionally driven, it has one of my favorite jump scares of the year and it's a traditional horror jump scare it's one that is my favorite moment it's in the just film. A, it comes yeah. out of nowhere you don't see it. no you will He's jump very will, good at building away by this. and uh he they, there are some nice surreal touches we'll go into more detail on ad astra next week yes we will but for the moment we are talking film festivals the fifth annual sf3 smartphone flick fest concluded this weekend at events in was george street um, brian fisher who was on the show a couple of weeks ago won the best cinematographer award for his film cold with kenny foo um, the winner this year was Joel Pergolot for Sad Sax, a film about a Jewish wedding gone wrong, Mazel Tov. And there were 15 entries this year. It was the biggest year for the festival and most significantly, so congratulations to Angela Blake and Ali Crew on this year's gala. But most significantly, it was the festival's first smartphone feature entry, Blue Moon from New Zealand director Steph Harris won the inaugural smartphone feature award it was a remarkable effort for having shot the entire thing over 30 hours they had one location they had five nights to shoot in six hour blocks it was shot in a server the whole film is set the early hours of the morning at a new zealand service station and uh, amazing coverage 
for using an iPhone. There were moments where um, the iPhone was of a special great use, whether it be getting in behind the counter or not so intruding on the actors. They said statedly that they could not have made this film with traditional camera given the logistics, given the amount of time they have to spend replacing batteries and all that. So they could only make this on an iPhone. There were times where it was a bit of a detraction, uh, particularly it was shot at night and sort of the depth of field um, was noticeably pixelated in a few of the outside shots, but that didn't um, distract you greatly from the film. It centered around two superb performers, both of whom um, are, stage, are fixtures in the New Zealand stage and who have worked with Peter Jackson. Um, notably, the set designer who won the Oscar for Return of the King is a local in Motueka, the small town where they filmed it. So he was very helpful in uh, helping out the project. And the director is a local police officer. So it's very helpful when you're a police officer and you can get um, the local police force to all, you know, just be in your action thriller drama so blue moon it is one worth seeking out and i think we're going to be seeing more and more smartphone features or at least features which are shot partially on iphone the theme of this year's festival more than previous years it's not so much that you could uh you have now the ability to shoot a film it's that people can't tell the difference they premiered this at dublin and they only told folks afterwards, just like Sean Baker and Tangerine, that it was shot on an iPhone. People were surprised, and fairly so. So I got my new phone this week, and I can shoot beautiful photography on it. And we're getting to the point where it is um, becoming more seamless. And we'll, we'll and what SF3 has been touting for years now, we will see it as start to affect the film industry more generally, as it doesn't just democratize the industry, but the fact is that uh, seasoned filmmakers too will use the opportunities, as Steph Harris did here, to shoot. The film on an iPhone that is Blue Moon. Um, it should be screening. Hopefully, uh, it should be screening later in the year at other points around Australia. The other festival, the other major festival that happened this weekend, is the Sydney Underground Film Festival. It's the thirteenth annual Sydney Underground Film Festival Factory Theatre, and we've been there all weekend. Yeah, we're going to do some capsule takes, I guess, on some of the films that we liked and didn't like. Starting with the opening film, The Beach Bum. The Beach Bum. The Beach Bum is the new film from Jaime Karin, the Spring Breakers director, starring Matthew McConaughey. Isla Fisher, Jonah Hill, Zac Efron, and Snoop Dogg in a prominent role. It is about um, the beach bum, uh, played by Matthew Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey, who is living in the Florida Keys and apparently living his best life. He's the guy who's at all the parties and all the tourists want to get their photo with him. And he basically just hangs around on the pier smoking weed all day, from what we can see in the movie, and occasionally also just drinking and uh, falling over. So he he basically, he's a washed up poet. He used to be considered a great poet, but these days he's wasting his potential. And the film, the the arc that seems to be set up is how is this guy who's just lazing around on drugs going to get the mojo back and create a great work again? And the film is, look, I actually really liked this. Um, I thought it was kind of funny the way that the, the, the film so intentionally swerves away from any kind of positive moral um or any kind of character growth instead it's basically about a, it it epitomizes the kind of the stoner mentality which i guess is what corinne's going for where a guy basically does nothing and just succeeds all right <laughs> but i i thought i think there was a level of of tongue in cheek to this that i i found funny and i because matthew mcconaughey's performance for me was deeply hilarious it was hilarious, but it was the he was in every sequence of the film. I hate what I call the mirror effect in movies, where 
there's a main character and they're every second or more lines of dialogue. So every line is about them. So there's no space to breathe. There's no space to reflect on his character and anything that goes on. And there are some excellently staged sequences. My, my highlights were uh, a driving scene and a sequence where a group of men invade and wreck a mansion, including Grand Piano. There's a number of sequences. There's a two films at this festival where Grand Piano was wrecked. It was a terrible sight. But there's it doesn't operate at any other register than this it's just relentless and after half after one act of this it becomes tyson because the film doesn't begin to offer anything new i appreciate that they weren't going for character development but the fact that there was no character development means you couldn't invest um in any of these figures when the characters do terrible things you expect a comeuppance of some sort but there was no consequence for anything that happened and it's such a basic storytelling element that was so slowly lacking from i this think movie. well this is the the way that i think this film is I guess subversive in some way. In it's not really about likable characters at all. Um, it, it it really just has a likable energy and likable filmmaking. I think um, it it's a, a movie of incidents which barely move the plot forward. It's not plot driven at all. If if anything, it's really just centered around um, this the madness of <laughs> McConaughey's character. Um, I find it difficult to defend this intellectually. Uh, because a lot of the appeal comes from it just being so knowingly dumb. Look, and I, 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 when something's dumb like that, like either you gel with it or you don't, I guess. The, the actress was obviously sold this as, come spend a few months in the Florida Keys with Matthew McConaughey and Isla Fisher and Snoop Dogg. We were sold as this as, come spend two hours with this crew in this location. And look, there's an audience for that. Certainly it was the best environment to see it. I'll, I'll say one thing um, for the, this film. The, the Harmony Corrine is um, t- using more un- kind of unusual film techniques to, to what could otherwise just be like a super, super dumb, simple stoner comedy. He's taking on Terrence Malick's technique of filming a movie in a whole bunch of different, filming a scene in a whole bunch of different ways and then editing it together into one scene. So the whole film kind of feels like drifting, floating memories. Um, it, it, had, it had a strange vibe. You know, so we're going to be back on the podcast talking much more about the Cinema Grand Film Festival, the Beach Run, the many excellent films that screened there. Congratulations, Stefan Pescu and Catherine Berger on the an excellent 13 festival. It was an absolutely wonderful weekend, and all the Tech 48 winners and finalists. If you're listening on to SCR, stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. We're going to be back next week, back with Varat Nehru and Felix Hubble from Static Vision, talking all things Static Vision and Ad Astra, which is in cinemas now. Static Vision put on screenings at Palace Cinemas and they've got a new one next week on the 24th of September, the Tuesday, right the, before our episode. So if you want to be part of the conversation on Wednesday, go and seek out that screening. I was at home, but... So seek, and please see a queer screen at uh, 18th to 22nd at Events of Miss George Street. There's been Glenn Falcons, Chris Evans. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. Welcome back to Film Fight Clubs. We are talking in the Underground Film Festival Another major event that happened over the course of the weekend was the Tech 48 screening, um, which, uh, which you know, Chris and I, a number of others participated in. There's Brian Fisher, who won the Centropathy Award at SF3. And there were so many excellent entries. Um, congratulations to the winners and finalists in the Audience Choice Award winner. It's the first year they've done it, but they're going to be back next year. So if you want to make a fun film of 48 hours, work with a bunch of friends or a bunch of new people, do get involved in that. Another film that screened at the festival, it's my top 10 of the year. It's probably my favorite film from the festival, which is The Art of Self-Defense. It's getting an exclusive screening run at Golden Age later in the year, so we're going to be discussing that in more detail with Virat Nehru in the coming week. He caught it at MIF. But suffice to say, uh, it is a superb feature from Jesse Eisenberg and Alessandro Davola and Imogen Poots. And Ryan St- Riley Stearns. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. 
Um, so we have a few films to talk about which screened at the Sydney Underground Film Festival, some of which will be getting releases, other ones which you should see, absolutely seek out. The first one we are discussing is Greener Grass. Yeah, this one is a strange one. And Stefan's pick of the festival, uh, as, as he's in our discussion last week, we should note. Yeah, um, which I, I understand because it is not really... Okay, I'm about to contradict myself. I was going to say it's not really like anything else, but one of my big criticisms is that I find it too derivative. Um, but there still is something unique and fresh about this film. It's about t- uh, essentially two couples in this oversaturated suburban um, ideal, which is kind of played for ironic, surreal, kind of comedy horror humor. Uh, the main character, Lisa, trades her baby or gives her baby away, which is just a natural, normal thing. Yeah, as a completely casual thing. When And her friend says, okay, sure, um, which kind of sets the tone for this film. The interactions are always just a, a little bit removed from the way they should be in, in our world and occasionally supernatural events are just accepted as normal. Um, there's su- surreal products constantly being hawked on TV. Um, and Think interdimensional cable, less imaginative, no, slightly more grounded. No, think Tim and Eric's awesome show, Great Job. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I, I have, yeah. It's so exactly like the Cisco ads in Tim and Eric. Okay, actually, yeah, I'll pay that. And everything's so exactly like Tim and Eric in terms of the humor. like the, Not like, the production design and setting and slightness. Not no, not the production di- design and setting, but you know the moment at the beginning where it it uh, there's this close up of of the credits of this uh, kind of a smile wavering into a frown and the, the kind of awkward um, awkward expressions. There's a, one of the guys in this even kind of looks like Tim Heidecker. The um, a little bit, yeah. But um, you know, like when people are kissing, close ups of like the tongues going in and out, out of the mouths. It was it's just all of these kind of gags. I couldn't really. Um, just go with because I was constantly feeling this is real, like really like Tim and Eric's awesome show. Like, have you seen the Absolute Vodka ad they did with Zach Galifianakis? Val- Galifianakis. I I don't think so. No. Okay. Well, the you know there's a in that there's an extended montage of tongues going into vodka, <laughs> vodka <laughs> martini glasses as as they're licking. It's a big. Up. It's a big motif here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big thing. But. In this film, early on, there's a scene of, of the couples kissing, and the way it was shot was almost exactly the same as that. The same kind of gross-out saliva humor, you know. Um, but in the context of Tim and Eric, commercials make sense because the whole thing is just kind of like uh, emulating TV. Tim and Eric is like you're watching some weird uh, late-night public access <laughs> nightmare. Um, whereas in this. You know, why are we taking so much time out to watch ads beyond that Tim and Eric did it? And that's the reference point. The one good element of that I did enjoy wasn't the ads. It was one of the TV shows. TV shows as well. Those were much more creative. I'll say, I'll start with what I enjoyed about this film. I enjoyed the world building when there was world building. In an hour and a half movie, there was about 30 minutes of it, uh, mostly towards the beginning. And that were some, those were some of the more creative parts of the film. I really enjoyed Darcy Carden as the uh, teacher, Miss Human. Uh, many will know her as Janet from The Good Place. She's the best performer herein, and she utilizes her deadpan shtick that she used to. It's a great effect in The Good Place, a similar effect here. Um, there are, in terms of the world building, there's some great sequences, one especially great one with involving 
uh, one of the male characters and a dog frolicking in the park. There's yep. also one uh, pivotal sequence in the film where a character transforms and it's done with very good practical effects, something you wouldn't expect. It's very lo-fi. It, it, I think that the big problem with this film is that it has cool ideas for scenes, but none of them stand out after a while because everything is pitched at the exact same really, really, really weird register. And it's also going for the same kind of comedy again and again and again. And um, it's hard to stay with a film that's so relentlessly ironic for two hours because I think everyone picks up on the the topic. If there's satire here, I think everybody picks up on it pretty quickly. That, okay, you know, suburban um, malaise. Okay, it's like, you know, okay, Blue Velvet, American Beauty, etc. Um, the ideas are more interesting than the practical effects yeah, and impact just, of subsisting in this world. And so the broad scope of it and the ideas they introduce in terms of what the char- who the characters are and the world they live in is more interesting than as a consequence of what they will have to do and what we see them do day to day. It's also just kind of undisciplined. Like a lot of the um, scenes in this film follow the same kind of template of person is aggrieved and instead of um, the social interactions to correct this aggrievement... Uh, going with any kind of politeness, everybody just acts affronted to each other and is, you know, rude in a way that isn't acknowledged or is out of out of sync with, you know, the the dynamics of the relationships as one would expect them. Do you go? Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's it's always like, um, oh, can I? I'm sorry, I did this, and you know, is this okay? No, it's not okay. And they pull this same joke over and over again in the film. I just feel like. Yeah. But this could have been tightened up a lot. There aren't enough ideas to fill a 90-minute film it, because the whole thing is, it really feels like a sketch. Look, the, the fact is, and this is a major issue in sketches and short comedy more generally, there's no real context in this universe, in, in a universe where it's okay to just give your baby away for matters that are really considered taboo. So when a character acts something that is taboo, it comes mostly out of nowhere. Well, it's pure so there's absurdity. There's no grounding for their action and because it's absurdity there's no investment or um the realistic ground you need even in the absurd theater for those scenes when you actually have to feel oh this character is is in a fix because mm. there's no sense of oh um we can now see where how we would relate in the circumstance because we have no idea what would be appropriate or inappropriate in the circumstance the issue another issue for me is that when so much of the um drama is repeating itself and so much of the comedy is very derivative of very specific kind of sources then it's hard for the film to feel that shocking and when you're going building a film around absurdity i think the surprise is really important but within 20 minutes i think i got this film that said it was 25 30 for me then i was yeah check that out a little that said there's um there is something interesting about this film and i'd be curious to see the development of the directors because the undercurrent of sadness from the main character is interesting. The fact that um, th- that she's so desperate and om- leaves almost every scene in the film, uh, you know, looking frazzled. And it's actually, it's actually, I'm not sure the actress's name, but it's actually an amazing performance in the lead in the lead role. Um, I'd like to see a film that um, mines the surface of that darkness more instead of, I guess, going for cheap laughs as much but maybe i just didn't click in with this um 
if you like the, this kind of weird <laughs> Tim and Eric esque um, surreal dark comedy, then usually it's something that reserved for the short stuff. But here it was elongated to feature length. Yes, that is Greener Grass. And next film we're talking about is Alice from Australian director Josephine McCarris, who was in town for the Sydney premiere. It previously screened at the Melbourne International Film Festival. It stars Emil- Emily Pifonier as a um, she lives in Paris and she lives with her family. Um, she is and her young child and her husband. She soon finds that, unbeknownst to her, um, large sums of money have been withdrawn from her and her husband's joint accounts um, at his volition rendering her destitute and she finds that this is a result of her husband engaging with escort services and in order to you know keep afloat and keep a roof over her child's head and her own head she begins to engage herself in escort services it's a really ambitious film in terms of how it juggles tones because it can go from despairing drama to having almost slapstick moments of comedy it, slapstick's probably putting it a bit much, but there, there's some f- funny physical comedy. There's some surprisingly light bits. Um, it can seem like it's going into really dark territory and then suddenly turn around and humanize characters. Um, I think it's actually really, really successful. Um, it, it seems to be a film made on an r- incredibly tiny budget, but it really drew me in and held my attention. The comedy in this is really good. And as Chris said, it is because it comes out in that way. It's kind of intuitive in the scenes you don't expect because the it sets it up for a more dramatic reveal and certainly it does not treat the industry as light it doesn't necessarily it doesn't either overly glamorize it or um, not delineate some of the more concerning or most concerning aspects of being involved or working within this industry Um, from separate to that the in terms of storytelling there's a you don't see a lot of really strong cyclical storytelling and how characters relate to others themselves comes back in full force um, later so when there are about turns for the characters dynamics um, it works exceptionally well the weaker aspect of the film for me however was a the character of her best friend for several reasons hang on (laughs) i i said that this was my big issue with the film when, when i walked out and you're like i didn't have an issue with it um I immediately have... when the film it's like on second thoughts no I've, I've since reflected and I have I, okay alright no no I, I'm allowed to step back and like think about it for a little bit I've no, you, are, you are you uh, are but I'll let you start and then I'll and I'll and I'll, and I'll have it go and then I'll go into it I felt that she was always kind of convenient for the narrative both in terms of the plot functions that she sets up and in terms of being there to be a thematic bouncing board being there to give her a, a new female friendship someone who knows the ropes of the industry she is just she seemed to be serving a purpose thematically and in terms of plot as opposed to really feeling like a real person where all the other characters feel much more fleshed out as real people um my major issue wasn't so much the thematic aspect it was more in terms of the functions and the narrative which you touched on uh, we had, when we talk at the, the art of self-defense, one of my major points of praise for it is that there is a non-twist in that there is an extremely obvious twist, but they don't treat it as an obvious thing. They just treat it as a natural fait accompli within the story. They treat the audience as intelligent. Alice doesn't do that. There's an extremely obvious revelation involving a main character, which they treat as a, oh, aha moment. But if you're watching this, and certainly by it's this point obvious. of the film, yeah. everyone should see, see the gears turning it's from this premise. Massively foreshadowed. And a yeah. film which otherwise takes its main figures, particularly Alice 
and her husband in directions you don't expect, in empathetic directions you don't expect. Yeah. This is a moment where we needed the shock. We needed the re- second act reveal or late second act reveal. The film didn't need that. It could have just revealed it more casually yeah. at another point in the narrative and it would have been much had much more of an impact. Yeah. And the the going back to what we were talking about the friend character, the the best friend that Alice makes. Um it it's those scenes uh, pretty much every scene with her, I think, doesn't work as well as everything else in the film. And a few of them made me think they belonged and or felt like they'd just come out of a completely different film. And it wouldn't be such an issue if the film didn't hinge on that. But it does hinge because, you know, you can feel that this is a character built to move the, the narrative forward and resolve issues that arise for the, for the character. You, know what? you could have removed this character... The film would have worked just as well if I and it would have, the film it would have been the, smarter and it's just a, it's just there to um, bridge gaps you did someone there to explain to her for a, a person who's new to this industry here's how this works yeah here's how to, and that could have been managed in any number of ways instead of shepherding all the story development into this one character and um, who they want to they, they, they touch on her own storyline and it's not of it's not enveloped enough or um, stretched out enough or developed enough to be of significant interest which the, ov- the overall interest in this film is certainly the Alice storyline which is much more compelling hopefully that'll get a release um, it, it's still a really good film especially given as I said before it's a, it seems to be very little means and is a debut feature yes. very promising and the next thing we're talking about is Braid 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 this is starring Madeline Brewer who many will remember from Cam and from The Handmaid's Tale it is about two best friends who, uh, due to a drug bust, gone wrong, on the run, uh, go to hide out at their friend's, from the childhood friend's mansion, where she is an heiress and she lives in relative isolation. And in order to hide out there, they must play along with these games, which obviously, because this is the Sydney Underground Film Festival, only escalate and it is far from G-rated. I this this has an incredible color palette. It's hyper directed. Yeah. The um the concept is in some ways familiar, but what stood out for it is um, the sometimes incredibly interesting staging and pacing and work with the camera, um, the blocking, uh, everything about the way it was put together. Though at times it's a touch too much. I think you, it feels like a director really trying to just grab everyone's throat and make a huge impression. Um, and so th- this story doesn't necessarily deserve or need this level of hyper stylization, but that's the main thing that's providing interest after a while as it gets more and more convoluted. The appeal of the film and is the visuals, and yeah. some of them are great, and they're going to work amazingly well in promotions. However, the story goes through a lot of flux, a lot of change, and a lot of upending. Uh, to that point... And I can't say the name of the film because it will ruin an element of the story and perhaps um, this film as well. But there's a prominent film from recent memory which has a very famous twist. which is this been film emulated. is also running with that twist. And it's not just... But many films have emulated the twist. But this emulates it in terms of style very clearly to the point of, oh, it's almost playing out with the same narrative beats. It becomes... If you will, you'll likely have seen this film. It becomes evident yeah. later in the piece. It's just hard to escape comparisons 
you know, it's the same issue we were talking about with greener grass. When you're going for a feeling of freshness and shock, but then you realize how much of this is is derivative. It kind of goes against the prime appeal that the film is going for. That said, there's enough invention in the filmmaking that I'd again want to see more from this director. Oh, the, 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 the cinematography was gorgeous. Mm. Um, Mitzi Peroni is the name? Or? Y- yes. Yeah. Um, there were, however, I wish there'd been some more grounding in terms of exactly why the characters were in certain situations because you needed that for an understanding of stakes and it becomes apparent later in the piece but you really did need that much earlier Um, another thing this film does that really frustrates me and it's a big sticking point for me in a lot of psychological horror where it revolves around a character who is alternately either um you know not exactly entirely with it and to the point where they will give away things or say things that will put people on their track or give people just enough of a lead to overcome them but then just as the plot needs it and it happens simultaneously immediately within one sequence they move from that mode to hyper intelligent um oh i need to know what i can do to overcome this and it's a weak point in storytelling usually it's seamless or not noticeable because it's stretched out over the course of film but when a character jumps between these two modes not just in one scene but within successive sentences it's very distracting and it's a one of the poorer points of uh, one of the poorer points of the screenplay for me that is Braid. And the next film we are talking about, should we talk Francis Ferguson? You can if you'd like. I missed it. Okay. Francis Ferguson um, is the new film from Bob Byington, which uh, he's a bit of a fixture of the festival. And it is, uh, Stefan discussed it last week in the program. It is about a teacher played by Kaylee Wells, well as Francis Ferguson, who is um, implicated in um, having sex with a student of hers. It is um, in large part a comedy, and but I would say, as Stefan alluded to, it is not making light of what is a very serious issue. It is, however, skewering it from a comedy lens. I don't ever know one other, um, anything that has ever dealt with this issue from a comedy perspective, and that is South Park in a famous episode. Um, however, I really li- I like this movie a lot. It's a big focus of the film. It, it does a rare thing. It has a rare piece of integrity. A lot of films particularly when they have a character or an actress who is very conventionally attractive, will focus on that as being an element of their character. However, and this is a big focus of the film, however, the fact is the fact that she is conventionally attractive is an element of her character. It's an element of the story. It's not about, she doesn't, it's not a priority for her. It never has, it never is in the film. She makes it very clear from the beginning. But But what is teased out is how, that relates to how we see her, others see her, and how this alleged crime is viewed in that context. It's a very dark comedy, and it doesn't go in the expectations you would expect. I really enjoyed this. I really want to see more from this actress. A film I really liked that I saw as well is Sort of Trust from Lynn Shelton. Um, it's a p- pretty much entirely improvised by the, the feel of it. Um, comedy. A lot of Lynn Shelton's other films have also been built on improv, and she's extremely good at it, and she's lucky to be working with Mark Maron here as the lead, who has great comedian's instincts. Um, it's basically about uh, a plot that could play out as a play, really, um, in that it's set in a few contained locations. It's about a couple who inherit a sword and try to sell it at a pawn shop, and they realize that people believe that this sword is related to a conspiracy and is supposedly evidence that the South won the Civil War. 
So, um, of the, course. Yeah, so there's a lot of good comedy about um, the way that people spin these kind of stories and the world of conspiracies. Um, while this is also kind of balanced out with um, a personal story about the, the Mark Marin character's um, history and where he is in his life at the moment. Uh, and I found this to be really genuinely funny. Um, like there's such a naturalness to the uh, interactions between the characters um, and kind of witty repartee that doesn't feel too much like quips in the way that conventional American comedy writing is at the moment. Um, I really recommend you seek this out if you're up for a quite low-key character-focused film where not much happens, but at the same time it, it tackles interesting themes um, and has a lot of just humanity and empathy for the characters to it and again it's funny how rare is that these days yeah yeah you, you know it, it's a right to make comedy out of dark or serious subjects yeah um the next thing we're talking about is use me from australian new zealand american director julian shaw who also features a uh, very prominently in the film it is a starring sierra lynch who is a financial dominatrix essentially so you'll have to explain what that is yes so she um sierra and julian were guests at the festival she actually ran a financial domination workshop she according uh, as outlined in the film essentially gets men to or men pay her money or she or she spends men's money and that you is pay a, her to spend your money and that is a form of satisfaction of, of domination and it is a it's hard to discuss the format of this film without going into too much detail about the plot. Um, you certainly understand it once you've seen it. I would say it starts off certainly a very strong doc uh, documentary focus, focusing on Sierra's life and the day-to-day, -day, what, she, what she would experience, um, and more and more Julian are getting acquainted with um, her industry and the her realm when there is a major shift in the style of film later on it it will uh bring make it very clear more over what is going on certainly filmmakers and a general audience will have very respectors on this sort of film and the film does raise um straightforwardly and explicitly a lot of questions about uh, documentary filmmaking and ethics and how those should be approached um when there is the shift i it's I had the strange dissonance where i appreciated the first two thirds of the film much more. However, I didn't nearly enjoy the latter third, um, given the style was not as endearing for me or as interesting or engaging as the more straightforward documentary focus where we got to know about this industry and this person, which I hitherto was unfamiliar with and is distinct and fascinating. That is what, that is what Suffer's always done well. It has brought uh, things to our attention that we would not otherwise get to experience. No, and congratulations to Julian and Sierra on winning the Indie Spirit Award. And they're going on tour with the film, so uh, best of luck. Another thing uh, Sydney Underground Film Festival stuff has always been really good at is bringing new films from Takeshi Miike. And so this year, uh, First Love screened. I loved this. Um, it's just a really, really solid action film. It feels like it's ripped from anime and manga, um, which Miike tips his hat that that's what he's going for pretty explicitly at one point towards the end. It's about a young boxer who has been given a diagnosis that he's going to die of cancer. So he feels like he's got nothing to lose and he ends up rescuing a girl who he sees running on the street by punching a person out. That person turns out to be a police officer who's involved in this scam with a 
Yakuza member um, to try and rip off drugs and he's inadvertently messed up that plan and turned the woman who he's now accompanying into someone who ends up being wanted by you know maybe three different factions of gangs who all want to kill each other it's a kind of convoluted plot that is explore, explained in a in a nice simple straightforward way in the film and is actually really easy to follow um but it's an excuse to bring together these um outrageous characters um and watch them fight basically it's it's an excuse for action scenes and in really a, a kind of pure action film um template uh it has great sword fights shootouts car chases but at the same time there's actually a uh, a level of empathy that you build for the, the leads and you want to see them get through it it's the bare minimum plot but it turns out to be just enough and Mike is such a pro now at putting together action scenes the sense of where everyone is is so clear he's able to keep pulling off you know tricks where someone comes around the corner when you're not expecting it without it feeling cheap um it's just a lot of fun i really recommend first love if you love action films i'm um, speaking of action or more drama and thriller is the new australian film locust which had its premiere at the gold coast film festival then revelation and had its new Wales premiere just yesterday it is starring um, a number of Australian actors, including the last role from Damien Hill, who sadly passed away last year, it was to whom the film is dedicated. It is directed and produced by Heath Davis and Angus Watts, and it is about a young man who, being absent from his small uh, mining town for 20 years, goes back for his father's funeral and finds that his father, um, you know, was in the pockets of some quite bad people, and has addressed this, and obviously this brings his surviving family members and old friends into the Lurch. Um, it is filmed in and around Broken Hill in Sydney. I spent quite a bit of time in Broken Hill last year, and it's hard to cap. Yes, it's used as filming locations a lot, but it's hard to capture both the eeriness and the record stark beauty of it. A lot of it is shot during dusk and at dawn, and captures this exceptionally well. It also uses some of the locations that are underused to good effect. There's a milk bar on the south side of town, which I'm surprised there's in more films. It's a um, eclectic spot, and it's in it. It's, it's um, utilized well as are a number of the performers, and it is that outback thriller. Certainly, many who are listening to me now will think of Wake and Fright and others like that, and certainly it is very much in that tradition. A few of the films that screen at the festival, Tone Deaf which is uh, starring Rob Patrick um, from Terminator 2 and Amanda Crew, uh, who is one of the leads in Silicon Valley. Stefan built it last week as a Trump supporter going after millennials. I actually think that was a... It was an element to the film, but it was kind of tacked on a fair bit. It is about a Amanda Crew's character who goes to an Airbnb and is randomly targeted by the Rob Patrick character. The... A political commentary is overlaid to give it a bit of an edge. However, it really is subsidiary to being a backgrounder for someone to just go around and smash people's heads in with hammers, as you do when you're a psychopath. Um, the commentary was just a little gulling for all coming when characters decided to abruptly turn their faces to the camera to explain their motivation, which I, didn't appreci- which I really didn't appreciate, and I hate it when characters do that, especially when it's so out of character for the rest of the film. Uh, there are some great 
um, dramatic sequences, including one on a set of stairs. However, it also has that shining element, and I'll extend that to Crimson Peak, where, oh, so fortunately, a character just rocks up exactly when it is so needed to change the course of events. Um, I could This could have been a great little piece on um, the country versus ruled, uh, urban divide in America, or millennials versus baby boomers, as explicitly stated, but it certainly needs to integrate a lot more of that commentary into the movie. Um, then that follow is another one which will be, oh, I should also note, Locust is getting a release. It'll be screening at the Randwick Ritz on October 17. Another film, the new Olivia Coleman film, then that follow is about a, a small religious group in a small mountain community in, in Ohio and a event that happens involving the daughter of the local minister, Father Walton Goggins, which offends that community. It is... Uh, is a, it's built as a bit of a horror, I've noticed, but it's not a horror. It's a drama. It's a very intense drama. I do wish that we'd had a little bit more opportunity to know more about this community, certainly in films that deal with religious communities. We'll not just give it a background as to how these communities practice, but why there is such fidelity among followers. This was very soil lacking. Um, I This is not a community or a type of community that I would be at all familiar with, so I would have appreciate just a bit more of a grounding into, hey, here's why these people, aside from the um, economic elements which are hinted at in the film or supposed to made explicit, but why there is such a overarching appeal and um, devotion to this minister and this cause for a lot of the ensuing drama, which was very confronting to um, elapse with more of, um, uh, to, to be more relatable and to have more of an impact. Um, I also, yeah, so there's, it's been a great, it was a pretty great weekend. We saw a few other films, uh, Dreamland, Red Letter Day, that we talked about Dreamland last week. And I've got to give it to the festival organizers. I mean, there's, stuff have a distinct crowd. They come out for the festival every year and they're there for those four days. And you, know, you mill around in between sessions. The Factory Theater is a great venue in that there's this amazing courtyard. So it doesn't feel like you just queue up and line up for movies, and then where do we go? No, there's this central space where there's bars and there's shade and there's sun if you wanted, and there's food and there's fresh air, and you can just hang out and, and talk about the films, get to know people. Um, two it's nice. It's really it is two things I think Suff did really well this year that um, they always have done well, but certainly have improved in recent years. Is that the features this year? Last year. Uh, my favorite elements were the documentaries, the music documentaries. The features this were year, good. Features were a huge step up this year. There was year. actually a surprisingly large amount of really good films. And the other element is the interactive component of it. Uh, there were two interactive screenings where uh, fellows from the Museum Archives came and talked about the Moon Conspiracy, and Andrew Leevold of Trashorama came to talk about Nollywood and Nigerian cult cinema. However, as we alluded to Take, take 48 earlier, that lent it a huge dynamic um, interactive element because people who came for Take 48 met and started to collaborate and went to other screenings and it led some momentum to the festival. So we do hope that, I'm sure there will be in coming years, not just more interactive events, but um, this, this great momentum going to the festival where um, from events like Take 48, um, you get a new crowd and you get a crowd who are not just invested in their film and what they're producing for the festival, but uh, discover this whole new range of cinema that w you would not otherwise know about or ever be exposed to. Well, it would be nice to keep the, the underground going. Oh, yeah. Which and I think is what Stefan is trying to do. Yeah, like, and he's doing a good job. I mean, it was uh, they sold out two cinemas for closing night. I've sold at the Beach Bum. Very impressive. So that is the Underground Film Festival. It'll be screening again 
at uh, Factory Theatre in September next year, as will Take 48, the second inaugural, second um, annual program. It's SF3. Um, you can go look at some of the winners now on the Facebook page. A lot of them have been uploaded. Congratulations to the festival's 50 year, and look out for Blue Moon. The um, uh, Queer Screen is screening from the 18th to the 22nd at Event Cinema's George Street. We'll be screening from the 4th to the 6th of October at Mountain Vic Flicks. We're going to be back next week with Felix Hubble talking Static Vision and Ad Astra, which is in cinemas as of tomorrow. If you want, uh, again, to catch up on Static Vision, because we'll be talking about the film on the show next week, on Tuesday, coming up in Sydney at the Palace Central Cinema, is I Was at Home But by Angela Shelanak. I, bl- um, I hope I've gotten that name right. <laughs> um, it's a film which won the Silver Bear at Berlin, but did not receive any kind of release in Sydney until Static Vision picked it up. So Felix will be talking about the, the mission of Static Vision and also that film and what they've got coming up in the future. So there's been Glenn Falkenstein and Chris Evans, and we'll be back next week. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy the underground. I should point out, by the way, just to be perfectly clear, that screening is 7.30 p.m., I think, 24th of September at Palace Central. And I was at home, but don't be at home. <laughs> don't be home. Go see the, go see it. Go, go see the screening. They, they, they are good fun. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Enjoy the underground. Good night. <laughs>